Our daughter Amanda was visiting Jacksonville in early August, and she, of course, brought with her our new grandchild, Finnegan, and three-year-old granddaughter, Brooklyn. We went to the pool, of course, and I sat and watched an amazing lesson on how you teach a three-year-old how to swim. She started by having her put her head in the water and blowing bubbles, and soon it progressed to where she could actually keep her head underwater for a little bit while Amanda held her. Soon she progressed to standing on the edge of the pool and jumping off into Amanda's arms. Amanda would let her drop some into the water. She held her breath well. That progressed after a day or so to where she was jumping in the water. Amanda did not catch her. She would go under her and then bob up, and then Amanda would be there. Finally, Amanda began to move further and further away from Brooklyn as she jumped so that Brooklyn would keep her head down and kick her feet and get to Amanda. After a while, it was several yards between them. It struck me that that is an illustration of how Jesus was treating his disciples immediately after he went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, told them then that he would be crucified would die and then be raised, and began to teach them in incremental pieces the the distance to prepare them for the distance that would be between them ultimately after his death and resurrection. Every single point of Mark's gospel after that transfiguration event is about Jesus teaching his disciples how to be disciples when Jesus' presence was not immediate and in so doing also teaching us about how to be disciples when Jesus is not standing in front of us as well. This morning's text comes to us from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It comes in the same chapter as that transfiguration event, beginning in the 38th verse and ending in the 41st. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. John came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. He was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. This is the word of God. No matter what age you are, but especially when you're younger, especially as a teenager, there's nothing more painful than being socially ostracized. That is to say, you were not included. We were one banner short today of full inclusion of our children, and I felt so sorry for the young boy who did not get his banner. He didn't feel like he was a part of things. When I was in fourth grade, my parents, unfortunately, feeling afraid because the school that I went to, Dilworth Elementary School, was to be integrated, decided to transfer me to another school about three, four miles away called Myers Park Elementary. Myers Park Elementary was the 
highbrow school. The, mostly the rich kids went there, um, and I was basically middle class. And when I got there in fourth grade, I knew I was already an outsider uh, from being on the inside of all those uh, Myers Park people. So I was self-conscious. And then I, I discovered how much of an outsider I was on the first day of school when we went to recess to play kickball and Ed Pease and Ed Halls were elected captains of the teams and they began to pick members for their team. And when it came third or fourth pick, I was tall back then uh, and believe it or not, lanky. And uh, Ed Halls looked at one of his teammates uh, and said to him, what about that new boy? What about him on the team? And the teammate said to him, nah, he's not one of us. And that was a moment of social rejection that I can still remember this day. It caused me to say, I'm going to show them. The rest of the story is that three months later, I was one of the captains picked. That's not true. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I did make sergeant on the safety patrol. Scientists are saying social scientists and anthropologists and psychologists and now neurobiologists who do brain scans are saying that the most painful experience for humanity, for each human being, is that experience of being left out, ostracized from a social grouping. And we've all had these experiences. When you discover that you are now not in the group, but out of it, you know what that kind of, for lack of any better term, shame of not measuring up feels like. But as I look around our congregation, I see mostly people who have measured up, mostly people who have been insiders, professionally, uh, through education, through uh, economics, and so forth. Think about those who, by virtue of birth, have been told that they don't measure up by race, by nation, by gender. They experience that outsiderness at, at often every opportunity. As I read Mark's text, it strikes me how universal this experience is, not only for us, but as it was then in Mark's day, too. We all have this need to form tribes or cults or sects or inside groups. And those groups always end up with rules about who's in and who's out and what you're supposed to do when you're there. But there's nothing worse, I, I think, than religion for making these cults, these sects, these clubs so rigidly insider. In Mark's Gospel, John comes to Jesus because he sees a man who was not one of them exercising demons. And he says to Jesus, there's this guy out there who's uncredentialed. He didn't go to seminary. He may have gotten his ordination online. He's not even a Presbyterian. He's one of those non-denominational folks. You know, they have band music and show the words up on the screen. 
He's out there healing demons, but I told him he had to stop because he was not following you. He, he wasn't one of us. It's religion at its worst. Recently, I was having a conversation with someone about the visit of Pope Francis, and he asked me what I thought. And I said, I got to tell you, not since I've been born have I experienced such a breath, such a power, such humility and grace and depth and love as I have experienced in Pope Francis. I think what he has brought to the world, not only is he changing his church, our church, but he's changing the world. What he has brought is a light for all of us. What do you think, I said. Shook his head and said, I don't know. I said, why not? He's not one of us. I said, what does that mean? He said, he's a, he's a Roman Catholic. Why do we do that around this thing about religion, making our little rigid rules of membership, of who's in and what it takes to be in? What? I don't understand it. The disciples felt jealousy, maybe because they had tried to exercise a demon just a few verses before and hadn't. And yet here's this man out there who's not even one of them doing it. And so they go and tattletale to Jesus to get him to stop. And Jesus says to them, don't stop him. Whoever does a deed of good power in my name is doing good. Don't stop him. Besides, whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus said. Now that should ring familiarity with us because in 2003, I think it was, or maybe, yeah, when we decided to invade Iraq, the powers said a similar thing, but not exactly. The powers said, whoever is not for us is against us. And there's a difference between whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever is not for us is against us. Whoever is not against us is for us is a wide berth, a whole lot more possibility of people than whoever is not for us is against us. Because whoever is not for us is against us is saying, if you're not doing it the way we say it ought to be done, you're an enemy. But whoever is not against us is for us is saying, you are doing your thing and that's fine, and if you're not our enemy, then we're all on the same team. Which is exactly what Jesus was saying about the man who was healing outside of the included group of disciples. This is one of those teachable moments for Jesus. He has plenty of them with them and us. He widens the door even more in the end and says this. Truly, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to one of you will find his reward. He didn't say that he has to believe in a certain doctrine or dogma or participate in a certain church denomination. He didn't say any of that. He simply said, whoever shows you an act of kindness and compassion because you are one of mine, will participate in the reward in heaven. 
enlarges the scope of who's in and who's out enormously. Jesus, I think, is trying to teach his disciples and us about how to learn how to swim in the incredibly deep waters of baptism, the waters of the kingdom of God, those waters that include all of us. Jesus healed Gentiles, for God's sake, not just Jews. The disciples were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Isn't Jesus supposed to be the Messiah to the Jews? No, Jesus said. The disciples were Jews. They grew up under the tutelage of Judaism. They knew what it took to be a good Jew. And now Jesus is saying, that doesn't matter anymore. The door is wide open. And it drove them crazy. That thing in them and us that that decides that our whole sense of self-esteem is related to the particular social grouping that we find ourselves or the denomination or the church or the club or however you line it up. That's how we know our our identity. Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, no. For our identity, Jesus says, is simply this, that we are children of God. All of us, each of us, children of God. No matter what name we profess, what religion we even uh, discipline ourselves with, Jesus is saying we are children of God. Pope Francis gets this, I think, as much as anything. You know, uh, when when I first came to Jacksonville, we were looking for a vet. And uh, several of you mentioned we should go to Howard Acre. His brother, Charlie, is a member here. And uh, so we took our dog, Yates, to Howard. And and Howard said, finding out I was a preacher, his first question was, uh, Pastor uh, Goyer, do you think that uh, animals go to heaven? And I said, you know, uh, the Bible says that God redeems all creation And inasmuch as animals are part of God's creation, then uh, whatever heaven is, then uh, I think all things go, including Yates, my dog. And he smiled, and he said, I'm with you, brother. He said, but I also have to tell you, you're the only pastor I have ever asked that question who said yes. Everyone else said this. Only Christian men And women who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior go to heaven, they said. It seems to me, however, that that's part of that inclusiveness that Jesus came to caution us against. I don't know who goes to heaven. I do know this. Even if we say we do not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ still died for us. He was raised for us. And in the end, I have to think he will find us, even if we think he is not one of us and we are not one of his. You know, there is a story about how that works. The night Jesus was being interrogated before his crucifixion in the temple, Peter hung around outside, warming himself by the fire. 
And a woman in the crowd noticed him and said, I know who you are. You're one of them. You're one of them. And Peter said, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not one of them. He's not one of us. I don't know him. Three times. I'm not one of them. He rejected him three times. And three times, the resurrected Christ comes back to Peter and re-accepts him back into grace and love and forgiveness. Which is to say that no matter what, Jesus will find us. And in the end, I think at least that all creation will be part of the wholeness that is one of us. Glory to God and for Jesus Christ, God's incredible revelation that we are all included in God's kingdom.